So, hi Julie. So, thanks for coming on the podcast with me. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks very much. Um, so, you're Professor Julie uh, Bernhardt, um, and you're um, at Melbourne University. Yes, that's correct. And the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. And yeah, and the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. So, tell me about um, you know how you got to that position now. What's been your your journey through life that that took you up to, to being um, at, at the University of Melbourne and at the uh, Institute as well? Yes, I, I think it's interesting when we look back. I've been uh, working for 30 years. I started as a physiotherapist, was very passionate about working in stroke and did that for a long time. And I think along the way you start to question, well, why do we do things that way? What is the evidence for that? Why can't I make the breakthrough with my patient like I would like you know, like to see them make a breakthrough. Why can't that happen? And so I, I think I, I definitely started thinking about the whys quite early in my career and that put me onto the path of looking at research. And so over time you do research in combination with clinical practice in my case and then uh, it just becomes sort of all-encompassing and you really want to start trying to solve big problems. And I think uh, you combine the passion for a particular field, uh, a real urge to make a difference and try and find new treatments that might help patients. And for me, that gelled very nicely in um, working in this clinical research field. And I came to the Flory Institute uh, because they had a very strong stroke program and I've been here ever since. So when you, you took the decision to go into physiotherapy right at the beginning, what, what motivated you to do that? Yeah, this is an interesting story because I was thinking about doing teaching when I was about 16 and then my uncle had a stroke and he was only 50 at the time, so quite young and I watched him go through rehabilitation and it was that experience of seeing him in rehab with physios and others working with him that made me go, oh, physiotherapy, that looks like a really interesting career. Mm -hmm. And that really set me on the path to become a physio in the first place. Okay, so it was that, that kind of life, um, sort of a life event that, that sort of spurned you on the path to go down physiotherapy in, in that way. And, and before that, you did you... I mean, was your family supportive of science and and um, an education, or was it just something that you you'd picked up yourself and and you motivated yourself to do? My my family don't come from an academic background. Uh, my father's a was a carpet layer, and my mother at that time um, was working as a library technician. So they didn't have a pathway in mind for me. Um, they've just been always very encouraging and have said, if that's what I want to do, go for it. So I, I had no family expectations. I've really um, been able to tread my own path um, as I see fit. And I think, if anything, my, my parents probably, are, they were very excited when my, I got my PhD. Um, they didn't really understand what it meant in terms of, uh, you know, the highest academic you know, level. Um, I think my dad made a gorgeous comment, which was, um, if Julie wanted to get a different hat apart from that floppy one that she's wearing, how would she do that? And my supervisor at the time said, well, she would have to go and do another PhD uh, and you really wouldn't want that 
bill. <laughs> so it was rather gorgeous. Yeah. And, but um, it's just been incredibly encouraging. Yeah. And so, you know, the the reason I do this podcast is just to talk about, you know, science and, and profile women in STEM as, as leaders. And so now in your position now, I mean, um, do you manage a team and what's your, your kind of leadership role that you're you're doing at the moment? Yeah, I, I think I am just such a strong advocate for um, equity and uh, I've always identified as someone who believes in uh, equality mm. between men and women. So if I've always had a, a gender lens um, in in my approach um, and also I'm very much um, encouraging of the next generation because to me uh, my legacy will be maybe a breakthrough in stroke treatment, but if not, I want the next generation to be on the path to pushing towards that breakthrough, and and that's for men and women. So I have a team. I have men, young men and women in my team. Um, I also head a division of the Flory Institute, so I head the stroke division in combination with uh, my colleague uh, Vincent Tyson, who's a neurologist. And um, we uh, have about 60 people working in various areas of stroke research. My own team is about 12 people um, in size. And I also have a role um, within my institute in trying to promote um, culture change and um, equality in science for women and for others. Mm-hmm. So, as a as a kind of a, a female leader in STEM, what if what has your been experience your experience been of um, sort of leadership and and the uh, the issues that that women face in STEM careers? I think it's fascinating right now because um, I'm at the point in my career I'm over fifty and uh, I'm at the point in my career where, where I'm really becoming very vocal about this issue. So. I think at a personal level, within my institute, I had a very strong male leader who was um, uh, an advocate for equity and uh, so I've always felt quite supported when I was in a smaller institute and then we amalgamated into this large um, institute of neuroscience and I became quite aware of um, the fact that this was not the case across all the different areas within science and in fact, in basic science, I see significantly different challenges to clinical science. Um, I think there's still problems right across the board, but um, in basic science in particular, there's still that very stereotypical older white man wearing white lab coat. Um, and, and so we've got significant barriers, I think, uh, to, to progress. Um, for me, and so... Now I find myself um, also working on the world stage. I'm in, involved in a, a number of world groups uh, in my field, and it's, it's it's either it ranges from sort of benign neglect or um, the unconscious bias issue where people just don't consciously think about it. To I guess um, you know outright. Um, not wanting to shake the tree or or make any change. So you really do encounter quite a spread of um, attitudes and opinions. And there are some fantastic um, male champions out there too. So I think for me, um, right now I'm becoming 
yeah, very vocal, trying to remind people, especially when it comes to things like conferences, um, can we really make sure we include some fantastic women in the program, women chairs, uh, younger people, both men and women. Um, it just takes time. But I, my impression is you just can't take your eye off the ball. You just have to be pretty vocal and you have to just continuously remind people that this is something that we should be striving for. Mm -hmm. um, and what is it when you, um, when you look back and, and you see the, the challenges that, that you've gone through in terms of um, you know, moving up to become a leader in, in the STEM field, what, what, where did you feel particularly challenged in, in that career? Where was it that you felt, you know, this is, this is particularly difficult for me and I really need to step up? Uh, I think there are a couple of pivotal points in my um, career that where I needed mentors to help me through. Um, and some of it is, some of it is you just identifying it yourself and, and working out what to do and other times it's having someone who tells you uh, that you need to do things. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think for me um, a, a positive, a really positive pivotal moment was having um, a senior colleagues, um, one, of, one of whom is a, a male um, who's been a sponsor and a mentor for me, who just said, Julie, you've got to think big. If you want to survive in this industry, if you want to thrive in this challenging industry, you have to think really big. So don't be held back. Don't, don't be held back by thinking what I might be able to do now, but really be possibility focused. And, and that was a, a really important, um, a really important message for me to hear quite early in my career. It, it, really encouraged me to go uh, right out there and do things that other people hadn't done before. So, uh, and that, of course, is how you have success yeah. <laughs> in science. Um, in the negative side of things, it's really interesting. I think um, I, I, I think I'm always uh, trying to work out how... Uh, you work within a system and a structure as it exists now and sort of move within it. Uh, in some ways, I would say that uh, not being a physician has been a challenge for me. Um, in medicine, um, you know, it is a fact that, that uh, it's a very powerful group and um, I wasn't a physician. So for people to say, oh, you're a physician, no, I'm actually not. I'm a, a physiotherapist. So there was sort of a barrier to that. Um, and that was just about uh, really getting respected for what I was doing, you know, to uh, get noticed um, and make sure that we could talk as peers um, and remove the hierarchy to some extent. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think I think the challenges and then look, the other pragmatic challenges in science is just the funding model. It's just ridiculous. Um, and I say that with all respect to the fact that we all have to work pretty much across the board in different countries. We, we work in a similar system where you live and, and die by the grants you bring in. Your salary is by um, uh, grants, your money for your team is by grants and so we spend a lot of our time writing grants and um that is quite a challenge yeah yeah no i no i, I understand that that grant writing area because I, I used to do it with the um 
with the Commission for, for Research Funding and um, uh, one of the reasons I, I got out of it was just that it was, you know, you just get to the stage, you get demoralised with the amount of, because you lose a lot of, a lot of times um, and you might only win, you know, a couple of times or your, your win rate, rate, rate may be so small that you win only a, a couple of times a year. But, um, but you know, you keep taking those knocks from, from losing all the time. So at the end of the day, it was like, I really can't do this anymore. It's getting a bit too much to, to, um, to keep writing and losing, even though you're that's, successful at it. <laughs> Uh, no, absolutely, and we see this all the time, you know, Gary. I think we see it all the time. It's um, it's uh, you have to be incredibly uh, resilient, I mm. think, um, in a lot of these areas, and uh, you have to be able to uh, throw off a rejection or a failure really fast and move on. And I must say, as I've got older, that's become, in some ways, it's sort of harder, even though you're more successful at it, yeah. uh, because of that, I think because of that chipping away factor that you've just described beautifully, it is, it is, um, it can be quite wearing. Yeah, no, exactly. So um, thinking about your, your leadership challenges that, that you have at the moment, I mean, um, do you think leadership within science is different from leadership within, say, private industry or, 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 um, or business? Ah, interesting. I've, I've just had a, a, a an interesting con conversation with someone about what makes Australian leaders different, or what do we see? Look, I haven't worked in business, so I can't I can't really make a comment. Um, my partner is from business, uh, the business sector, so we certainly have some interesting conversations um, at home. Um, I think the the thing that's different in science is that. Uh, because of the way science is funded, as a leader, even when you see that things need to be done, um, for example, you might have uh, a couple of stars in your field who you know need to be supported because they're on to something really special and you just don't have the funds to keep them. Uh, so I think... Whereas if in business potentially uh, the money is there, you restructure or whatever and, and you've got funds. Um, so, but in saying that, in science we have enormous um, privilege and freedom. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of um, advantages. It, science is really very uh, blue sky. You can have an idea and pursue the idea and if your peers um, judge it to be worthwhile, then you'll hopefully get support for it. In business, you have other leadership challenges where you might have a great idea but you just can't get it um, going because you've got other structures in place. Mm -hmm. So, look, I think the leadership challenges are still uh, are, are similar. Um, getting teams to work really effectively within whatever your constraints are, uh, being someone that can try and inspire others to move in the same direction that you would like them to go, I think these are commonalities across um, what we what we lack in science is we lack the ability to throw incentives in front of people uh, to keep <laughs> to get them to move in a certain direction. So I, I would have to say, for me, I think my biz, biggest um, ability, which I've only really identified later in my career is that I have that ability to um, encourage and inspire people to move in a direction and mm. and that's probably been the reason that I've 
succeeded because I can get people to come with me even though there's nothing on the table for them. Okay. And, and, and so how do you do that? What are your behaviours and, and what are you doing or, or saying or acting that, 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 that makes those people follow you? It's interesting. I, I guess you probably you probably need to ask the people that feel happy to come along um, for the ride. But I I guess um, I could I I could confidently identify a couple of things that I think are critical. Um, the first is that the whatever it is that you're trying to get people to come along with is something important. So everyone agrees or they see the value in what it is uh, that you're trying to achieve. So I think that's – so that shared vision um, and that the shared vision is important. So I think that's the first thing you've got to get right. And then I think the next thing is um, making it truly shared. So the collaboration, how you approach collaboration I think is, is vital. So um, I have a very uh, open, transparent um, direct uh, way of, of dealing in collaborations that really inspires people to uh, feel valued as part of the collaboration and to share it. Um, so when I ask people to collaborate with me, I'm not saying I'm at the top of the tree and you'll do what I say. I'm saying let's come on this together and let's um, look at how we mutually all benefit. And... Um, and then I also, I think I have a lot of, I don't take my eye off the ball. Um, you know, collaborations uh, need attention and care. And and I, so I think that's the other key thing. You know, you've just got to, you, it's not, you can't neglect them. You have to really stay engaged. And, and when people start to drop off, you've got to get back in there and, and keep the, the ball rolling. Um, so I, I think... Being genuine, having an important question, and uh, and leaving your ego out of it to some degree um, is probably critical. And then keeping paying attention to it, it's um, you can't you can't really let let it go. Yeah. Um, so you also head up the other project, um, the Women in Science Parkville project. Tell me a little bit about yes. that. What's what's that trying to achieve? So I started that I've sort of moved it more into the background now with that, but I, I did kick it off. Um, Women in Science Parkville Precinct um, began because we were trying to do work within the Flory Institute around our own um, equality in science agenda. And I had read about um, the Stanford model, which is about collective impact. Mm -hmm. So this idea that... Um, there is a theory and a, and a sort of a practice behind collective impact um, that if you get people with a shared vision working together, then you've got more to achieve than working solo. So, and that to me made perfect sense given my other experiences in my own science career. Given so, given the what I saw as a, the low base we were starting from within my own institute, I reached out to um, two other institutes uh, along with a, a young um, dynamic scientist, um, Emma Burrows, and we uh, got those two institutes to agree to come and start collectively working on the issue of women in science. Um, and then two others asked if they could join. 
So what we ended up with was in our small geographical location of only a couple of kilometres, we have five major um, research institutes that work across different areas of immunology and cancer and neuroscience and um, baby and um, mother's health, etc. And uh, we've all come together to start working on on uh, women in science in our precinct. Mm-hmm. So what that means now, it's been running for a couple of years and we run it through getting philanthropic grants, small grants, Gary. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we now have a person who is dedicated to helping the collaborative work. We've just completed a major piece of work where we've got benchmarked data from all of the five institutes uh, around where are we at now. We've been doing a lot of work collectively around um, mentoring, sharing policies, developing programs that will run across all of the institutes. And um, I guess for those people who are familiar with Athena Swan, this is in the UK, we've only just started to do that in Australia and it doesn't necessarily apply to independent medical research institutes. It's um, typically the universities that are being the first ones to take up the pilot program. So we're doing our own work uh, in, in our sector and our sector is even because it's independent medical research institutes, we are very vulnerable with um, funding. We do have to get a lot of our funding um, from government. And so we have particular issues as well that bring us together on the on the, um, the uh, agenda of, of how do we change culture in the institutes. Mm-hmm. What can we do with the limited resources that we have? Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is around culture shift mm-hmm. and uh, supporting people. So, so how, so answer that question then. How, how do we change the culture, or what is it that you think we need to be doing to, to change the culture, and where are those inter, what, what inter, interventions, and when? Ah, oh, these are really great questions. Um, and if only we knew the answer, we would have solved it by now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> look, I think um, the culture issue is. Um, is so tricky, especially in science, because it is so cutthroat about who gets what grant and um, and you need the grants to survive. There's a lot of things at the level of the, uh, the system, and that's what collective impact is good for. So the level of the system, so the funding system, the funding model, there are a lot of things that sit there that are barriers to us getting equity um, because they are perverse incentives to not allow women who've got track records that might be disrupted with um, breaks or less, uh, you know, good trajectories, but they might not be at the top of their tree to go first and be at the head of a a grant or whatever. We have these really perverse kinds of um, incentives. So we're working with uh, when we can, we're working with the funders as well uh, within our collective to try and see how, as the big picture, um, some of these things can shift. Um, I think this, there are no there are no simple answers, but I think uh, the first step is to actually be start the conversation in institutes um, or in our organisations. Uh, we it's now become 
transparency, thing, things that actually benefit everyone, like um, overt policies around meetings, parental leave, uh, people, men and women taking time off to be at home with their children, uh, a lot of the policy stuff, the, as you start to discuss it, it helps men and it helps women. And as we start discussing these issues of blockages, where the blocks are and getting system changes to get women up into senior roles, um, it does help. It's helping the culture. It's becoming – so my my personal uh, observation is that over – you know, three years or so, we're now starting to have men who never would have been talking about equity who are senior start um, making commentary around uh, how they have to um, think about this person who's just coming back from maternity leave or um, someone else or thinking about equity on their teams. Uh, and you wouldn't, have, we didn't have that before. Uh, people were very comfortable just with whatever the status quo was at the time. So, I think culture is shifted. Um, I would I would actually think culture could be very well shifted with um, policy that came from um, the funders and perhaps financial incentives within the institutes. Uh, but we can't always throw we can't throw money at the pro we can't throw money at the problem. We just don't have the money to throw at the problem. So a lot of it's going to have to come from within. So I always um, finish the the podcast with asking for for your best advice to to you know future leaders in STEM and, and particularly women in STEM. I mean, throughout your career, what is it that you kind of know now that you you didn't at the beginning, and and what would you be your best advice for somebody? Really good question. Uh, so I guess I'd have a top three. I think I would definitely pass on my be bold um, and think very big uh, and build the collaborations that you need to get the job done. And I like one of my favourite quotes is don't take no from someone who can't give you a yes. So so don't, don't give up. If you get blocks, just go around them. Just keep going. Keep going. And um, I think uh, – and also um, – Reach out to people across the across the globe because um, I find people incredibly generous, and you just have to reach out. Don't be intimidated. Don't don't be frightened to reach out to someone who you might see as a global leader in something, and you think you're a little fish. Just just do it, and you never know what might happen. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. That last comment is reaching out, and it's one of the things that you know. Just doing this podcast has, has been a been an amazing journey for me already from the beginning of the year just talking to so many different people um across the across the globe you know i speak to people in america australia in europe um so it's just amazing that we can do that now and, and i think even now we have we have the ability to do that so you know if you're not sort of reaching out and making connections and and building uh, relationships with people um then you know you're it's it's something that you really need to do i think more than more than want to do it's uh, and the I couldn't agree more yeah. couldn't agree more I think it's vital yeah so um thank you very much for for coming on it's been wonderful talking to you and um and you know you've some, given some really good clear succinct answers to to the questions and I, I think it's um uh it's great to to you know what I find every time I talk to somebody about it is that 
um, everybody I talk to, you know, there there is a there is a positive story coming out here that that things are changing within in science, and there is is a movement um, uh, within you know the STEM fields to get uh, more women into into STEM, but also get more women into into leadership as well. And and I think it's great that that people like yourself are, are, are spearheading that and supporting it. So thank you for coming on the the podcast. It's been wonderful Hi. talking to you. My pleasure, and really nice talking to you too. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.